The biggest barrier is ignorance. Somehow we just got to get the message out, have more and more people understand the relationship between animal agriculture and climate catastrophe. We've got a few things that we're trying to do. And firstly, we're trying to make people aware about the climate crisis and how that is linked to animal agriculture, because it isn't something commonly known because all we're hearing about is fossil fuels. Part of it is letting people know that connection and then letting them know that their individual choices make a difference. Welcome back to another episode of the PBN podcast. This week, we're joined by Nicola Harris and Anita Krines of Plant-Based Treaty, an international movement and grassroots campaign designed to put food systems at the forefront of combating the climate crisis. Anita Krines is the co-founder of Toronto Pig Save and the Global Animal Save Movement. The group bears witness to animals at slaughterhouses and are dedicated to promoting equitable, eco-friendly vegan visions around the world through grassroots activism. She has participated in numerous campaigns and initiatives such as the Great Bear Rainforest Campaign, where she met environmentalist Sembo Behrman, who now chairs the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. Anita received her PhD in Political Science from the University of Toronto, and she has also taught at university courses on social movement strategies. With over 20 years of experience in pressure campaigning in the UK, Nicola Harris serves as the Plant-Based Treaty's Director of Communications. She studied psychology and computing at Bournemouth University. This laid the foundation for learning how to apply her knowledge of human memory and information processing in communication, copywriting and media strategies. Nicola coordinates the Plant-Based Treaty's online activities and digital campaigns, ensuring that their work has maximum reach and impact. I'm excited to talk to Anita and Nicola about some of the biggest challenges we face today and some of the plant-based solutions that the initiatives like the Plant-Based Treaty might bring about in the future. My name is Robbie Lockie and this is the PBN Podcast. If you do like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like and share. And as always, if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Anita and Nicola, thank you so much for joining us on the Plant-Based News Podcast. I'm really excited to sit down with you and hear about all your amazing work. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you, Robbie. Thank you for having us, Robbie. Fossil fuels and animal agriculture have set us on a path to accelerating climate destruction. Forest fires, droughts, floods, species extinction, ocean collapse, crop failures, Dangerous levels of methane, carbon dioxide, and nitrous oxide, melting Arctic permafrost. Animal agriculture has ruined our forests, oceans, air, water, and animals' lives. Our beautiful planet can take no more. We need a rescue plan. You've both been vegan advocates for animal rights, particularly in the context of animal agriculture for a number of years now. Could you talk a little bit about where it all began for you and why you started getting involved in this? And uh, we'll start with you, Anita. Uh, I, I, when I was in university, I, I saw a poster that was advertising the animals film. When I think of what it feels like to be lonely and when I think what it feels like to get shock, which I've gotten many times, when, I, when I'm feeling down and so forth, and I think of what Ralph, one of my squirrel monkeys, went through and what you know, different things went through, I think, jeez, I think. <laughs> A definite advantage in civil defense, military, and space flight operations. And somehow, one gets the impression that the chimpanzee is proud of his contribution. And so I, at that point, I was a, an omnivore. And when I saw the film in a basement library, I was shocked at the treatment of farmed animals. And I went vegetarian. 
that was in the 90s. And then when I finished my studies, I was teaching at Queen's University uh, in Kingston, just outside Toronto. And there was a student group that challenged me for being hypocritical. They were followers of Gary Francione. At that point, I investigated the dairy industry, and I, I did not know that the veal industry was completely connected to the dairy industry. So at that point, I went vegan. That was in around 2005. And at that point, I, I, was, I was an activist. I was a vegan. Uh, but I, I didn't bear witness for another five years until I adopted Mr. Bean, a dog. And we would go walking along Lakeshore in downtown Toronto, and we'd see pigs uh, looking out the, the transport trucks. And that sort of was an epiphany for, for me. And at that point, we organized uh, Toronto Pig Save. Amazing. And yeah, it's quite a journey, isn't it? And I think it's something that has connected to and empowered a lot of people. We'll, we'll talk about the Save movement in a bit. But Nicola, I'd love to hear how you got involved in animal rights and what does it mean to you and where did that all begin for you? So I think growing up, I was always this big animal lover. Um, I always remember signing petitions against fox hunting and fur. I used to visit like outreach stalls in my local town. So I was always like really passionate. And then I decided to do a school, my English class, I had to do a school project and presentation to my class. And so I did it on animal rights. And through doing that project, I became vegetarian because I picked up this leaflet called Meet Your Meat and I opened it and there were just like these cows hanging in a slaughterhouse. I just felt sick. And at that point, I just, I just knew I couldn't be part of it anymore. I didn't go vegan there. I think maybe if I'd picked up some leaflets about dairy and eggs at that time, I probably would have gone vegan. But a few years later, I was really trying to get my brother to become vegetarian. And he agreed to do a week trial as vegetarian if I tried being vegan for a week. So I agreed to it straight away because I'd been bugging him for years to try. Just a few hours into my vegan week, I, I, you know, started researching why I should be vegan, and you know, I knew straight away that that would be a lifetime commitment. And and from that point, I, I you know, I became an activist. I knew it wasn't enough just to change my diet, and I had to try and change the world too. So that was when I started ordering leaflets and doing outreach on my own. And one of my first protests, I was on my own outside McDonald's handing out leaflets. I, I just, I just straight away, I was just so like myself into it. Amazing, so inspiring both of you and you know I've been involved in this movement for many years now and it's working alongside people like you that get me out of bed in the morning because you look at the world out there and there's a lot of apathy and there's a lot of uh, sort of inertia really when it comes to bringing change to our world. And uh, I really take my hat off to both of you because I know it's a really difficult job. Um, it's very thankless. You know, we're often working behind the scenes and there isn't a lot of sort of support, whether it's financial support or emotional support. It can be very exhausting emotionally. So, you know, thank you both for, for the incredible work that you've been doing. Um, it de definitely doesn't go unnoticed, certainly by me. So, yeah, thank you for all your efforts. Well, thanks, Robbie. So uh, my next question is really like how you both started working together. Obviously, you've been working together for years now in Animal Environment mental activism um anita where did, where, did, where did the relationship with your platform and the movement like how did it all begin so animal safe movement has had been doing vigils for about 10 years and um then there was a horrific tragic event with uh, the running over of regan russell a pioneer animal rights activist at a at a vigil in burlington on june 19 2020 truck hitter jesus christ Animal rights activist Regan Russell was killed while standing in front of the entrance to Fearman Slaughterhouse. Halton police are conducting an investigation. Regan was there telling the truth about what really happens to these animals. And she was killed as a result. 
the industry here is very powerful and it will stop at nothing to make sure that people can't see the horrific conditions that animals are enduring. The government says it's trying to protect farmers and animals from trespassers. Bill 156 is a pro-agriculture act. It essentially stops protesters and extremists from giving water to the pigs like we see down here every couple days. Yeah. Who wants to put up with that harassment and get hassled? Look at this. These people here are illegally watering, touching, and stopping and interfering with a truck. They just want us out of the way. The police want us out of the way. The politicians want us out of the way. Movements have martyrs. That's the way it goes. This is a moment that is going to reverberate across the whole world, and it has. At that point, it was sort of a, a life-changing moment for a lot of people, including Nicola. Nicola heard about Toronto Pig Save and the Animal Save movement earlier, but when Regan died, it, it motivated her to, to write to us and to, to, to get more involved. Nicola had been involved in the Shack UK movement. And so in, in my view, the Shack UK campaign was you know, one of the most effective campaigns worldwide. And uh, they were targeted with repression because of their effectiveness. And, and Nicola had spent time in jail. And, and so when she joined us, we, we really welcomed her and just we knew that she could really change the way we do our activism and become more effective. Amazing, really, really inspiring. And obviously you talked about the Animal Save movement, which launched in December 2010. It's been around a while and it's been a catalyst for many people. I'd love to understand the principles behind this uh, and where the idea come from, because it's a, quite a unique philosophy. I'd love to understand its sort of motivations and its sort of principles. So Toronto Pig Save started, as you said, in December 2010, you know, when uh, just shortly after Mr. Bean and I were walking along Lakeshore and saw the trucks, it, it was the witnessing that was the epiphany. I had lived near the slaughterhouse for about four years, and I knew it was there. And I, 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 I would think to myself, oh, someone should do something. But only when I witnessed the pigs on our daily walks in 2010, did I take action and st start organizing meetings and um, and building a base uh, for Toronto Pig Save before we started doing our weekly vigils. Um, I think it's just that, that experience of seeing firsthand the farmed animals in the trucks and their fear and them pleading for us to help them is, is what was really a, a sort of a life-changing moment. And I, I felt that everyone should have this experience because if they did, they would prioritize helping uh, fight for animal rights. And when we started holding these vigils, three a week, every week, we were using a love-based community organizing approach. Uh, we wanted it to be something for everyone. So that's why we didn't call it a protest. We just called it a vigil. We wanted people of all generations to attend. And that, that did happen. We'd have children, we'd have grandmothers, um, the whole community coming out. The idea is that we all have a moral duty to bear witness. And bearing witness is best defined by Leo Tolstoy, the Russian author from the 18 and 1800s and uh, early 1900s. And he defined bearing witness as when the suffering of a creature causes you to feel pain, uh, don't succumb to the initial desire of fleeing, but on the contrary, come close, as close as you can and try to help, help him. It, it very much defines that choice that we have when there's an injustice in our community. You know, we can either turn away uh, look away, or we can come close and try to help. And we all know that the right thing to do following the golden rule is, is to, to help when someone's uh, suffering. So this idea really caught on. It spread quickly. And that was, that was the goal right from the start. 
And one of the interesting things about bearing witness and holding animal vigils is you have a lot of clarity in what is required. Uh, so you don't say, oh, you know, eat less meat or, you know, it just, it's impossible to say that because when you're at it, you know, looking at the 200 pigs in the truck, you, you know that they all should be saved. Uh, and that would be the same if you were in China and you stopped a truck full of dogs, you wouldn't say, you know, eat less dog meat. You just wouldn't do it. And so that that's one of the power, that's the power bearing witness. It's sort of, it, it forces people to confront, you know, what is happening to these incredible creatures. And you also see their individuality. That was one of the biggest results of bearing witness is, you know, they have serial numbers and the industry tries to take away their personhood. But when you bear witness, uh, you, 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 you look the, the pig in the eye and each pig is, is a, an incredible individual. We all have one chance in life to live and, you just see how grossly unfair it is for for these these animals to be sent to a slaughterhouse and butchered. So yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's been an incredible journey. But one of the frustrations I have is that when we started, I, I just thought it was so powerful, and I thought everyone should do it. And you know, it has spread to a few hundred groups. But I I, I always thought it would spread more and faster. And uh, because of that frustration, I, I felt that maybe focusing on something else like the plant-based treaty and climate change and uh, might get us to where we want to go faster. Pivoting is what people say. It's a bit of a businessy phrase, but when people pivot, they're like, they're still going after their aims, but they're trying a different tactic. And, you know, I have obviously a question which you've probably been asked a lot of the time is around the save and what you call it, the save movement. When people are there witnessing the death of animals, you're obviously not saving animals, are you? But something else is going on. I'd love to try and sort of have you articulate that process because even though as individuals we might not be saving the animals that we're witnessing they are dying but what else is going on as a side effect of all the people who are witnessing yeah that's a really good question i i you know the save movement over the 10 years has saved hundreds of animals and those animals have made a big difference you know for for those animals and for the people around them but we've witnessed millions of animals and as you know there's 70 billion land animals and trillions of marine life that are killed every year for food so the vast majority of animals you're not saving so what you're doing is only partially bearing witness doing a little is more than doing nothing and that's all i that's all that's the way i can justify it when you're bearing witness it increases your level of accountability enormously. So if you watch a film, that might make you go vegan. Like, you know, it changed my life watching a film. But when you bear witness, it be it became it becomes a priority in your life to fight for the victims that you had witnessed, um, because they're equal to you and your dog and your, you know, the, the people that you love in your life. And so it just changes you. It makes fighting for animal rights a priority. So that changes. It, it also increases awareness in the community. It also challenges workers, the owners of slaughterhouses and management. But we acknowledge that it's just a partial form of bearing witness, but it's a lot more than looking away and not doing anything. So yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it's about building power. So once you have enough power, that's when those trucks will stop, whether it's the trucks carrying dogs in China and then everyone rescuing all the dogs on the truck. But it's about building power to a point where you have a majority public opinion and, you know, these practices are banned. Today we went to some of the slaughterhouses nearby. We saw 
oxes, cow that were just standing in line waiting to be slaughtered. The animals were being numbered right on their forehead. We could see the terror in their eye. They were so scared. We tried to pat them on their forehead, comfort them. I had no idea that the cows and the buffaloes were being just waiting in the line, numbered. They were just mere product for the people. They are the same like us. They do feel like us. They, they have emotions, they have a lot of feelings. I used to be a, a hardcore meat eater. But then I just couldn't connect the dots because I felt I'm being a hypocrite. I was not aligned to my values. I wouldn't want to hurt somebody. I had to stop this. Always choose peace. Don't hurt, uh, don't hurt other beings. They are just like us. Bearing witness for me solidifies the conviction in our hearts that what is going on on those trucks and in those slaughterhouses is morally wrong. It builds that focus for anyone who experiences. I've been to Saves with you, Anita, in LA, and I've experienced it myself. I grew up on a farm. I witnessed and experienced animal slaughter, and it became part of life. So I feel a bit emotionally desensitized to it, of having grown up around it. So when I see slaughter, of any more ki killing of any any sort, it, I'm a bit desensitized to it because I experienced it so much as a child. That being said, I still believe that it is immoral and wrong that we shouldn't take lives. Um, we shouldn't take lives unnecessarily, or any lives for that matter. <laughs> but I, I would love to understand, Nicola, how this has affected you and your advocacy, because obviously being involved in this and experiencing it, how has sort of witnessing and bearing witness evolved your advocacy and your 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 experience, your unique experience as a as a vegan advocate? Well, the term bearing witness, I hadn't really heard of actually until I joined animal safe movement. But when I think back through my activism over the years, it's something that I was actively doing. Like our local group used to take people to visit chicken farms. We used to do it on school holidays and college kids would come and we would go out to a farm so that people could see for themselves. Because we always said, look, you can read it, a leaflet, you can watch a documentary, but there is nothing like experiencing for yourself. And so we used to go to farms and just show people and let them connect with the animals. And, you know, nothing can really prepare you for the, the smell and the heat and the intensity and the sounds. And you see things that you will never forget. Like I, I remember seeing chickens that had fallen from their cages and they were drowning in their own waste, being eaten alive by rats. That will never leave me. And, you know, and the people that we took to see that, that changed their lives forever. They became vegan, they became activists. And I just think it has this profound effect on you and it will just stay with you forever. It's this, the, the, the senses, smell and sight and emotion, obviously, when you have that visceral experience, it kind of, it, you could say, I, I certainly feel it, it burns a hole in you, doesn't it? 
it burns a hole in your soul. If you, uh, I'm not Christian, but you know, if you had a, if you have souls, it definitely burns a hole. It's such a uh, kind of emotionally moving experience because I think when we go to the supermarket and we see animals, you know, in these sanitized, packed products, we do, we don't see animals actually. We just see meat. And as a children, we are never exposed to the horrors of animal agriculture. I mean, I was as a child, but 99% of people are not. And, and they don't make that connection. Now, it is a curious thing because as a sensitive, emotional, liberal type, you know, why didn't I make that connection quite young? I'm curious as to why I was never vegetarian at a young age. But, you know, I think back and I think I, I didn't know anything any different. I didn't know that we couldn't eat, we didn't need to eat animals. And for me, the, the focus um, and what I love what you're doing with plant-based treaty is really going to the heart of the problem, which is educating people that we do not need to consume animals and really cutting to the very heart of the machine, which is this idea, conism, that we have to eat animals. It's normal, uh, needed and necessary. It's a natural part of our life and really trying to educate people, which is a long road. It feels like it, it may take several lifetimes for us to wake up our entire species. But uh, yeah, it's a it's definitely an, an amazing journey, and um, there's a lot to do. So moving on a bit, like when it comes to methods, my question around how we advocate is an important one. When people experience traumatic imagery through social media or any form of media, for that matter, it, it can, with my such as myself, desensitize people, but it can also turn people off. What is, in your opinion, Anita, the most effective way in which we can advocate? that doesn't involve showing too many violent or horrific images because it can very quickly turn people to unfollow or delete your page from from their social media you know over these years like how have you developed your your advocacy when it comes to what to share and how to share it i think uh, the the approach of having animal vigils at the front gates of slaughterhouses uh, shows animals before they go to slaughter so they before they are dehumanized um it shows animals with emo simple emotions that we we understand we understand animals pleading to for help for uh, we, we understand fear we understand animals coming up and nuzzling your hands and we give water to pigs and uh they're thirsty and it's you know it's, it's just these are these are very basic sort of acts of kindness that people can do in animal vigils. And these are the kinds of images that have gone incredibly viral, uh, you know, showing uh, activists bursting out into tears and, you know, pigs jumping towards a porthole to get some water and showing, showing images of these, uh, all these animals as individuals. I, I think um, th those are the main images that we show, but we, we do also show slaughter image somehow. And, you know, one of the most effective films ever is Earthlings and then Dominion. And, you know, so I think these, these films do play an incredibly important role to create activists. I think the kind of images that we show have broader reach and it can get people maybe into the movement. And then people then can follow up with different types of actions and also watching more and more of these types of films. I do think it's important to bear witness to the, the gruesome reality that animals face because it's very motivating. Uh, you know, it's not convenient. It's not inside one's comfort zone. But, you know, whenever you want to fight for social justice, there's uh, sacrifice involved. We do absorb some of the trauma, uh, you know, the, of the animals. The animals in animal farms live a life full of trauma. You know, we just go to a vigil for two hours. We're just absorbing a a small bit of that trauma, but it is important to do that. Um, unfortunately, that's the method. Like we, we have to get absorb some of that pain and suffering 
and try to understand their story and share the stories with others because others would not participate in the evil of harming these animals if they knew what, what if they knew the animals' stories. So when we do these vigils, we're basically listening to the animals and what they want. It's not so much about us. It's about what do the animals want? How do we share their stories? How do we fight to protect the, the future animals so that they don't have to go through this incredible, egregious suffering and exploitation? Hi everybody, my name is James Aspie and I'm at the National Animal Rights Conference in Washington DC right now. I just wanted to talk about doing all the pig saves and the chicken saves and the cow saves. The whole save movement is one of the most powerful forms of activism that I'm aware of right now. Anybody can attend and everybody should attend because when you bear witness and you see these animals coming into these slaughterhouses and you get that footage and you get those photos and you post that on social media, this is one of the most effective ways to make the connection with people that Animals are not products, they are not just a neatly wrapped package on a supermarket shelf. They were living, breathing individuals who felt pain and suffered and screamed in their last moments and they did not want to die. And that is a connection that people are yet to make. So you go to these saves, you bear witness, you see these animals, it becomes real for you, it fuels your fire and it also sparks the light in other people when you can share these images. So make sure you get there, support your, support your local save movement. If there's not already one in your area, start your own save movement. Join us and let's all spread this message and achieve justice for these animals. Nicola, with regarding kind of your advocacy and your experience over the years, have you? How has your your advocacy evolved with what you share and what you create and the messaging that you put out? At like Anita, have you have you kind of refined your your methods? I think it's always important that we show the truth and the reality of what animals go through because I feel that's the only way we can really end it because we need to wake everyone up. But I think you can get overwhelmed by seeing these images. So I, I just find it's always really important that when you present things like this, that you always offer a solution so that people realize that there is some hope and that we can do something about it. So it's sort of coupling those images and graphics with hope and solutions and going vegan and getting active. And I, th I think that's the way forward. No, I love that. That's beautifully said. I think, you know, it, it can be very, like when we first go vegan and we find out this stuff, a lot of the, the first reaction is to want to share, 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 share. And people see from our feeds as vegans, our non-vegan family and friends, they see a lot of this sort of violent imagery um, and are turned off by it. And often there isn't that thought about, okay, if I'm going to share this imagery, I want to couple it, like you say, Nicola, with hope. And positivity. Yes, these horrific things are going on in the animal agriculture industry, but you can do something about it. You can take this action. You can buy this product. You can sign this petition. If you feel something, take action. You know, and, and if you want to find out more, you know, this is why platforms like what you guys have created is amazing because it's giving people the power they need and the knowledge. So this leads me on nicely to the plant-based treaty, which was born after you met environmentalist Sapora Berman. I'd love to hear from you, Nita, about how it all began and obviously you, Nicola, as well, about the process and how it has how it has sort of come to life. But where did it all begin and, and what was the start? I, I met Sapora Berman in the 90s um, in the Clackwood Sound and Great Bear Rainforest uh, campaigns in British Columbia. She was a blockade leader and eco-feminist and someone who was very admirable in her activism. She, she worked for Greenpeace uh, 
international for their energy campaign. She she became active again, f- trying to save uh, old growth forest in British Columbia. And so I contacted her a, in April of 2011 and asked her, how can we put animal agriculture on the agenda? So I invited Nicola to join and Janelle, who's uh, uh, Genesis' mom. What she understands from animal rights activists is they just say, go vegan, go vegan. And she said, the governments are the most powerful actors. You've got to also target governments and work for policy change. And uh, then she showed us the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, which she chairs. And we were very impressed. It had like uh, over a hundred Nobel laureates, including the Dalai Lama supporting it. It basically called for a bottom-up pressure campaign to get a global fossil fuel treaty that would ban further exploration and development of fossil fuels. It would redirect economies and so forth. And uh, after the meeting, our heads were swirling so we, we met again right after on a Zoom, uh, Nicola, Janelle, and myself, and we go, oh my God, that was amazing. And then we said, well, let's just do a plant-based treaty. And it literally, it was that fast. And we had an incredible model. So we, we copied most of the elements of the fossil fuel treaty, like these three principles, like principle one, don't make the problem worse, like no new deforestation for animal agriculture, no new slaughterhouses, no new animal farms. And then the second principle was redirect subsidies and taxes and public information campaigns towards plant-based food. And then the third one was restore and, you know, reforest the earth, you know, create community gardens and all and so, so forth. And we quickly pivoted, as you, you said, uh, we sort of mobilized our all our directors of digital media, communications, vegan outreach, um, and so forth to work on this. A year into it, uh, you know, we've, 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 achieved a lot more than we achieved in some ways over a decade for the animal safe movement. There was much more uh, support from politicians, faith leaders. So we were able to do more community organizing and intersectional work. That had always been the dream of animal safe movement. I always had imagined rabbis and priests coming, you know, as ethical leaders, community leaders coming to vigils. It it never, never came to fruition. But on this campaign, the plant-based treaty, we're finding it very easy to work with different uh, sectors in society, because I think a lot of people are facing climate anxiety and they are recognizing that eating plant-based food is a key part of the solution, a necessary part of the solution. We're not gonna win unless we phase out fossil fuels and phase out animal agriculture very quickly. It's fascinating. And do you think that by changing the tactic, by focusing in on what people are eating rather than focusing on saving animals that we're saving animals in the in the in the process that actually when we're going to the point where the animals are suffering i I often sort of try and describe this the problem like a tree carnism is this big tree and in the branches are all the results of carnism in our culture and in the roots are the causes so the causes being the demand for meat and why is there demand for meat is because of the carnistic culture we live in which is education when we focus in on education, we focus in on reasons for not eating meat. So climate breakdown, you know, health, you know, we, we are solving the problem over here automatically by not necessarily putting people's attention on animals, but putting people's attention on themselves and the planet. Because unfortunately, human beings are intrinsically selfish creatures. We're self-serving. I try not to be, but many are self-serving creatures. And so when we make it about people, them, 
we make it instantly more palatable. You know, the plant-based treaty is about what I can do to save my planet and our home, you know, and by eating plant-based, you're doing that. And then like, oh, we've, you don't realize this, maybe you do, but you're actually saving animals in the process. So, you know, a lot less animals are killed because you're eating plant-based food. The planet is going to be less damaged and uh, your health will probably be better. So it's like a triple whammy <laughs> and it's great. I, I love it. I mean, you know, I really want to support you guys more and find ways in which we can really elevate and um, amplify the plant-based really on plant-based news. But always, it's always that age-old thing. How do we do that? Because obviously with media, it's really tricky to get traction and build uh, awareness of something. Unless you've got pots and pots of money, you need great content. And that content comes from planning and strategizing. You've mentioned about impact and you've had such surprising results, but what are some of the most surprising things that you've learned on this journey so far? Nicola, I'll put that to you. I think I didn't expect there to be such widespread support. Like I thought it would take much longer to get support from politicians and things like that. I didn't think they would jump straight on it. And I was like amazed that um, 20 MPs and UK Parliament signed an early day motion in support of plant-based treaty and a transition to plant-based world. I didn't expect to see that so soon. So it's been really, really like a pleasant surprise. And I think just everyone's energy for plant-based treaty has been really exciting. Um, you know, we've got some really great supporters. And when we send out our email actions, everyone's like really keen to get stuck in. So I just really love the energy of it. It's amazing. It's great to see people feeling empowered. And I think that's the, the point is, like I said earlier, how we package up our advocacy is how it's received and the effectiveness of that comes down to the advertising of it, right? Advertising and media companies are able to sell billions of dollars worth of stuff because they pay some people a lot of money to package things up in specific ways that are palatable and, and understandable, relatable as well. Relatability is a big part of, for me, effective advocacy is if we help people understand how something impacts them, it's going to be easier for them to know what to do because people are very overwhelmed by everything in the world today. There's war in Ukraine, there's you know widespread climate breakdown, a lot of suffering. But for those who don't know, though, our food system is deeply entwined with climate breakdown. Well, Nicola, what is the, some of the key things that people need to know about our food system and how it's causing climate breakdown? Uh, it's very important to look at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC for short. It has three working groups, one on science, second one on impacts, third on mitigation and adaptation or policy. And uh, they came out with their sixth assessment in uh, 2020 for the science report and in 2021 for the impacts and policy reports. Last year with the science report, they said it's code red for humanity. And then this year in 2022, the policy group's uh, message was this is the final warning. What they meant by that, it takes about six, seven years to do an assessment of all the peer-reviewed literature. So that's why it's the sixth assessment since the 90s. By the time they do the next assessment, which would be around 2030, we'll pretty much decide which trajectory we're going on, whether you know, we're going to pass 1.5 degrees Celsius warming and 2 degrees Celsius warning and so forth. If we reach 2 degrees Celsius warning, uh, it's considered a climate catastrophe because at that point, we're going to cross a lot of tipping points. So some of the tipping points include you know, the melting of all the Arctic ice. When that happens, there's a positive feedback loop. The Arctic becomes darker so that it absorbs more sunlight. So it becomes hotter and hotter. And then the permafrost melts and releases methane and carbon dioxide. The Amazon is heading towards a tipping point. 
I never even heard of this, uh, you know, 20 years ago, that the Amazon might become a savanna. Like, it's just horrific. And, and uh, The Guardian has re been reporting about turning the Amazon into slaughterhouse because, you know, the main driver of deforestation in the Amazon has been um, the ranchers and animal feed companies like Cargill and Bungie. And that's happened all over the world. Uh, you know, a majority of the land is used for, for farming is used for uh, animal farming, you know, to grow feed and ranching. If people did not eat animals and drink milk and eat eggs, we could revert all that land back to forests and that would become a carbon sink and absorb you know, the carbon out of the atmosphere. A number of studies have said for a long time that animal agriculture is um, you know, a key contributor to climate change and we cannot get to our goals without addressing it. You know, historically, we focused on carbon dioxide, but now there's a focus on methane. Methane is a much more potent green, greenhouse gas, and it's accelerating. Uh, emissions are going higher and higher each year. The last two years have seen the highest emissions ever. It's a short-lived gas, but it's so potent. So if we address that, if we really cut methane emissions, it would make a big dent. If we cut emissions by a third by 2030, we could decrease the amount of warning by 0.3 degree, three degrees Celsius. That's humongous. You know, right now we're at about one, 1.1 degrees Celsius warming, and we're already facing so many climatic impacts. Imagine if the world goes to 1.5 degrees Celsius. You know, what does that mean for sea level rise, droughts, uh, heat waves, hurricanes, you know, and so forth. So animal agriculture needs an equal sort of billing at, at these climate conferences. And that's what we're trying to do with the plant-based treaty. And I think what's exciting about the fossil fuel treaty and the plant-based treaty is that there is a solution. And those two treaties show, you know, what the solutions are, or what are the big principles that we need to follow, the three R's in our case. We, you know, we, we say uh, relinquish, you know, no new slaughterhouses, no new animal farms, redirect subsidies and so forth, and then restore and reforest the earth. Like, we have the answers and so that's something that's really positive. And what I love about this campaign is that it's just the biggest barrier is ignorance. And so somehow we just got to get the message out, have more and more people understand the relationship between animal agriculture and climate catastrophe, and then show, show the simple solutions that we have, you know, diet change, not climate change, and also policy change. And uh, I think we can get to where we need to go much faster than we ever could with our bearing witness approach. Some sobering words there, but I definitely remain hopeful because obviously, you know, knowledge is getting out quicker and faster. But Nicola, regarding kind of the plant-based treaty and its ultimate goal, but before I ask you that, like one thing I would love to hear what you think is how can we fight apathy? You know, people can be presented with facts and they can see images and they can then still be apathetic. You know, I still want to eat my burger. I still want to eat my steak. You know, what are your feelings about this this type of behavior? Because it can be quite commonplace. People feel that they're just individuals. They don't have any effect on the planet. I'm just one person. You know, why does it matter? Why should I have to give up my meat? I think often people don't realize that they can make a difference. And I think with plant-based treaty, you know, we've got a few things that we're trying to do. And firstly, we're trying to make people aware about the climate crisis and how that is linked to animal agriculture, because it isn't something commonly known because all we're hearing about is fossil fuels. We're not really hearing about plant-based so much. So I think part of it is letting people know that connection and then letting them know that their individual choices make a difference. 
And then on top of that, then it's convincing people to take action so that we can do it on a mass scale all around the world. Moving on to broader kind of veganism. So a lot of people think that uh, veganism is only about animal rights, but veganism is actually much more than that. You know, animals suffer and subjected to countless kind of things that are connected to human rights, social justice, environmental issues. I often say animals are not the only victims of animal agriculture. Um, many, many people, humans, are affected by this and kind of really caught in the vortex of this horrific kind of space, this horrific industry. Um, Anita, what do you think needs to be done to bring more awareness to this issue? And what are some of the possible solutions? Because, as I say, you've got the plant-based treaty, but what else should people be doing? What else could we be doing um, to really get this conversation on the mainstream agenda? Yeah, I think um, with a pandemic and the COVID crisis, uh, one of the main victims were uh, slaughterhouse workers. And uh, in terms of hospitalizations and deaths, I think uh, for a lot of people, it uh, politicians, um, they sort of then became more open to the idea of uh, you know, switching to a uh, pl- plant-based food system. I think one of the things that we need to do is show solidarity for different movements and try and form coalitions, because if we can work together from multiple angles, I think that really helps get the issue out to more people. And I think when people start understanding these connections, uh, they see the multiple benefits. I think that like invites more people in to join your movement. I agree. I don't think there's enough cohesion with the environmental movement and the animal rights movement. There's obviously a a new group forming in between, which is kind of the enviro animal movement, which is kind of people like us who care about both issues really, really passionately. We're trying to bring the two subjects together. um, And that can be really difficult because whenever we talk about environmental issues on plant-based news, people fall asleep. They're not not interested. Uh, And it's very hard to empower people. But I think if we can bring these sort of what feels like disparate messages together and find a way to help people um, feel empowered about making these changes. And this is why the plumber should be so important because you're not just saying, here's a problem. You're saying, here's a problem, but here's a solution. And here's how we think in a very rational, logical way in which we can improve it. Because as I say, going back to our conversation before about people and their reactions when they first go vegan, it's often from a place of emotion, a place of trauma and suffering. And often that result is anger and frustration and vitriol and uh, misanthropy, you know, but we are human beings. We live on a planet that is unfortunately overrun by humanity, we have got to uh, empower our fellow human, homo sapiens to, to take action. And without them, you know, we, we are frankly doomed. So we've got to, got to get people to get aboard, get aboard the, the, the eco-vegan enviro bus. <laughs> yeah. But it's, uh, it's not easy. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we face an existential crisis uh, in the near term with, with the climate catastrophe. There are a number of planetary boundaries uh, that that are being crossed because of uh, animal agriculture. And so I think um, we literally have very few years to turn the ship around. And I I think, uh, you know, the climate impacts are already highly visible, whether they're the forest fires, the droughts, the more intense and frequent hurricanes, uh, sea level rise, you know, majority of people live uh, in cities and a lot of cities are coastal cities and with sea level rise, you know, you're going to face inundation and uh, salinization of the water. And and so these crises are 
very real and within our own lifetime. They are in the present. We're, they're not even in the distant future anymore. And it's, uh, it's shocking how sort of quickly the climate crisis is accelerating. Like, you know, the, tw- the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming is likely to happen around 2030 and the two degrees Celsius by 2040 if we do business as usual. Just uh, self-interest and uh, in a very immediate sense, you know, it makes it an imperative to to look at every solution possible. It's not a time for half measures. Uh, we, we really need to address animal agriculture and fossil fuels. And, and the thing is that the alternatives are wonderful. Like, you know, the plant-based uh, meats, the plant-based milks, uh, you know, soft energy, conservation, like all these alternatives are beautiful. I think things like the Ukrainian war, it's, it's sort of distracting us from a focus on the climate crisis. These major intergovernmental panel climate change reports came out at the time of the Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian war. Th- that's unfortunate because they didn't get the attention they deserve. So it's really imperative that all of us highlight these reports because uh, you know they come out every six seven years and they're they it's a review of all the peer-reviewed literature around the world on on this topic so it's you know it's a very very significant report greta thunberg read this as a teenager she would read these reports so i would suggest that as adults like we all read these reports and and uh, because they really are about how to save the planet the plant-based treaty very much relies on the IPCC. We put their reports on our resources page. Uh, we also have uh, vegan starter kits on our uh, resources page, a guide for children and parents. We're, we're going to have some um, plant-based treaty guides to different cities. You know, we work with Happy Cow on that. And um, what we're really, what we're focusing on right now is a cities campaign because in a bottom-up approach, in order to get a global agreement, you really got to start with individuals, groups, businesses, and cities. If you have the support of those groups, it creates pressure on national governments to negotiate a global treaty. So right now, our, what we're really working on are cities campaigns and trying to get cities to endorse the treaty. And uh, Nicola has um, introduced a number of email letters and uh, petitions on our website which have targeted cities like Bristol and Glasgow. And uh, we're, we're hopeful that we're going to get those endorsements this year. Amazing. Well, it's a very exciting times. And, you know, I really definitely see a lot of progress. But going, um, zooming out of it and talking about the system, the system being governments and the sort of, you know, this pervasive force that, that seems to, you know, invade our lives, whether we like it or not. Um, Nicola, you've shared previously that your campaigns and activist works led you to become a victim of state repression. And alongside other campaigners, you've received a prison sentence that in a controversial use of legislation. Now, that must have been quite a scary experience, or maybe it wasn't. But like, I'd love to learn a little bit more about like what happened, but also have things changed or have they got worse? Has, have governments, things like AdGag in America, have they turned the screw of things become more in even more challenging? Um, yeah, it certainly did come as a shock to, to me um, when it happened. Actually, this week was the 15-year anniversary of my original arrests. Um, on May the 1st, 2007, 700 police um, raided more than 30 properties across the UK and Europe and rounded up everyone who was involved in the Shack campaign. Um, Shack stood for Stop Hunting and Animal Cruelty, and we were campaigning to close Europe's largest animal research organisation, Hunting and Life Sciences. As a result of those arrests, we were then given like conditions and bail and electronic monitoring tags. And then we ended up with 
five linked criminal trials. Um, they were the biggest animal rights trials in UK history. And I was ultimately charged and convicted for interfering with a contractual relationship of an animal research organisation. And um, the legislation itself is very controversial because it gives favouritism to animal research laboratories. Um, for example, if you trespassed in a fur farm or something, it, it wouldn't be a criminal, but if you trespass on an animal research laboratory, it would be criminal. It, it made everything very much more serious against certain sectors of industry. So it's very con controversial. I, I question sometimes if the law itself is legal because you're not supposed to give favouritism to certain industry. We've, we basically were just very unlucky. I, I don't know if history would repeat itself. Um, I felt that it's quite a unique set of circumstances at the time. Um, our campaign was affecting the pharmaceutical industry and the Chancellor Gordon Brown at the time had this economic plan that basically relied on expanding the pharmaceutical industry. And so our campaign was risking that because the pharmaceutical industry basically held meetings with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and said, look, if you don't get rid of Shaq, we're going to leave the country. We're going to take all of our business away. Tony Blair and Gordon were very worried about this. It would have sent us into recession. And that's when they got together, formed these groups and meetings with pharmaceutical industry, and they came up with a plan to get rid of us. It's something that could be turned into a Hollywood movie. It involves police spies, agent provocateurs, a very deep, disturbing thing. I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward <laughs> to the book, Nicola. When, when is it coming out? Um, yeah, so to my partner, Tom, who is also part of the uh, raids and went to prison also, he um, is writing a book on the history of the campaign, which delves into the, the conspiracy against us and how we end stuff in prison. And hopefully it will be out within the next 12 months. Amazing. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that and also talking about it on PBN. And I think you've explained the situation in a very compassionate way, almost sort of giving sympathy to politicians and the governments around this issue. And it's kind of this tension between compassion and economics, right, where we want to save animals, but then politicians are really not thinking about animals, they're thinking about people. And there's this tension between us and we're there saying animal lives matter and you know, what's happening in these facilities is abhorrent, but the politicians are saying, well, we're saving lives because we're testing drugs on animals, we're just saving human lives. So, you know, who's more important? And, you know, removing emotion from the conversation for a sec, you can obviously understand why politicians fall on that side and they wanted to stop the protests and they wanted to stop the actions for closing these facilities. That being said, it cannot justify how animals are treated. And, of course, we all know now, uh, because of a lot of the work of Peter, that animal testing for a lot of the time is completely, like, unnecessary. That there are many, many um, more effective ways to test drugs um, and various procedures using computer modeling, um, AI. There's just so many much more compassionate ways than subjecting animals to some of the most horrific forms of abuse. I mean, how those people at those hunting the life sciences and or any other animal testing facilities, how these people sleep at night, I do not know. <laughs> it takes a special kind of soul to go and work at one of these places. But that being said, you know, we can't be judgmental. So who knows what leads people into these jobs? We can only hope and pray that, you know, some of these people read and connect with the vegan philosophy and, and it helps them 
connect their heart to the to the, the the intrinsic suffering that they are causing so really honestly nicola i cannot wait to read the story but also you know thank you for continuing honestly after something like that a lot of people might give up they might sort of go back into the into the ether and you know and hide away and be you know traumatized for the rest of their lives so you're definitely made of strong stuff anita you've been following gandhi's philosophy and and love of non-violence of love and non-violence then this is an approach to activism through love and positive positivity it's one of the most difficult yet effective ways to face problems and challenges in our time often on the other side of these issues stand exploitation greed and fear i'd love to understand how gandhi's teachings have informed your work and and your hope to teach others and which is a means to move to a more loving and less violent world yeah i think um our major influences at the start were Leo Tolstoy, who who corresponded with Gandhi and uh, strongly influenced Gandhi. And uh, Leo Tolstoy uh, was a pacifist. Uh, he was opposed to war and violence. He discovered vegetarianism in the 1880s, and uh, he wrote the preface to a book on famous vegetarians, a, a British book. And he felt that in order to write the preface, he would have to visit a slaughterhouse. So he went to a slaughterhouse in Tula in 1890 and bore witness on the kill floor and uh, wrote in a very uh, incredibly uh, moving way uh, from the perspective of what was happening to the animals. And it was called The First Step, and it was considered the Bible of the animal rights movement in the late 1800s. He, he wrote a book also called The Kingdom of God is Within You, and it was about love and nonviolence, particularly focusing on war. He believed that individuals had to be morally responsible and become conscientious objectors and not participate in a system of evil and that they there should be non-cooperation with evil and gandhi adopted that approach so in his civil disobedience approach in south africa and india it was uh, considered like active resistance but non-violent but it would go through stages and one of the stages is non-cooperation with evil and the idea is if everyone doesn't cooperate, then that particular unjust system falls. It's, it's inspired um, so many movements around the world, like Martin Luther King was inspired by Gandhi, Cesar Chavez and others. And um, Animal Save Movement drew on these other movements. Instead of thinking about the other side as enemies and hating others, the focus is on opponents and trying to transform them and convert them. So when we go to slaughterhouses, we, we, we tend to we see the workers as victims of the system as well. You know, it's incredibly unjust to have workers work in a violent, on a, you know, killing animals for eight hours a day. I supported that when I used to eat meat, dairy and eggs. And I think most of us have. And so we're all responsible. And, and uh, it's so unjust for anyone to have that kind of work. And we as a society, we, we, we should ensure that people have meaningful work. I think that uh, animal safe movement has, you know, it has really espoused this sort of nonviolent love-based approach and as 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 an ideal. I mean, we don't always we don't always follow it. Sometimes we we you know we have missteps, but it's the ideal. It's it's an approach that's more likely to achieve success for the animals, for for the workers, for animal rights activists, just for the community. Charles Dickens, uh, you know, he when he wrote Oliver Twist, he, he talked about different ways of educating and, you know, whether, you know, corporal punishment was not something that inspired education on, you know, if the teacher is, is, is approaching education with kindness and with, and looking at students as equals, then you're more likely to get a real education. And I think the same applies to 
social movements. Um, you know, a kind approach is more likely to achieve education than being uh, judgmental. Speaking of powerful words, there's a quote on your website that by Senator Josua Rodriguez, who is an endorser of the Plan-Based Treaty, and it really, really resonated with me. And she said, to know if someone really wants to fight for justice, you have to see what they eat. How does that quote resonate uh, to you and what does it resonate mean to you, Nicola? It is such a beautiful quote and it's one of the, my favourite endorsement quotes that we've collected. And I think it's it's so true because it's such a basic thing that we do each day is that we eat. And, and if we can eat with kindness, then we can do everything in our lives with kindness. And I just think that's like the really basic starting point is with yourself, because when you make changes individually and then people join you, that's how you make changes around the world. So beautifully said, we have an opportunity three times a day to make a compassionate choice. It's a very simple choice. And we're in the supermarket and we reach out on that shelf for the dairy milk or the pork or the chicken. You know, all we need to do and in many, many supermarkets around the world is just move our hands slightly to the right and pick up that plant-based product. More and more around the world now, plant-based products are sitting alongside animal products. So it's much easier, you know, for those who can't be bothered to go to the free from aisle or the vegan aisle, you know, you could, you're seeing these, um, what some say alternatives, I like to call them upgrades or successes, you know, plant-based products to me are an upgrade, they're a successor to the former animal products, which are, you know, as we all know, and we've discussed in great detail, absolutely destroying our world, not just our world, but our personal health. And of course, the, the lives of so many beautiful gentle childlike beings who we share this this incredible world with so coming to the end now um love to find out about what's in the works um plant-based treaty is raging on but anita what else is going on that we should know about that we should uh, look out for in the future the plant-based treaty uh has a number of campaigns under each of its three principles so the first principle is don't make the problem worse or relinquish and so we have a stop octopus farm campaign um, there's a proposal to build uh, octopus farm in the Canary Islands. We have a petition and a, a letter, email letter that you can sign on our plantbasedtreaty.org website. Under the redirect, uh, we have campaigns such as the cities campaign that we're asking plant-based treaties teams to form in different cities to start by getting endorsements from groups and businesses, and then going to city officials, council members, and asking them to endorse the treaty. And uh, so we have uh, important campaigns in Bristol, Toronto, Berkeley, New York City, because we have, we have a vegan mayor there. And um, a lot of the counselors are, have strong uh, animal rights credentials. So we're focusing on that city. So we're asking your listeners, like, if you'd like to join a plant-based treaty team, simply fill out our form on the plant-based treaty website, and we will connect you with other plant-based treaty activists in your city. And then we can get a campaign going there. And uh, finally, the th third R is restore. And we have a number of community gardens in the works and seed giveaways in Buenos Aires. They're developing community gardens outside soup kitchens and using the, the fresh produce for the soup kitchens. Those are sort of some of our main campaigns uh, for the plant-based treaty uh, this year. Everybody, thumbs up. We need to create coalitions and adopt bold climate actions to phase out fossil fuels and animal agriculture before it's too late. Plant-based treaty to the rescue! Everybody, green thumbs up! Everyone can play their part, whether you're at school, a business, politician, a community group, an activist. 
We need individuals, groups, businesses, and cities to help implement solutions and put pressure on national governments to take action and negotiate a global plant-based treaty. Pay attention to the three R's. Number one, relinquish. Let's not make the problem worse. No new animal farms, slaughterhouses, or deforestation for animal agriculture. Number two, redirect. Let's transition to a healthy plant-based food system. Number three, restore. To heal the problem by reforesting the earth. Time is running out. We have less than five years to solve the crisis. Everybody, green thumbs up. Eat plants. Plant trees. Endorse the plant-based treaty. Teaching people how to grow their own food.、Uh, I can't remember who said, but、um, there's a, a a guy who produces a lot of community gardens, and he said, "Growing your own vegetables is like printing your own money." And I think when you can teach people that, you can give them the spaces in which they can create and grow their own food. You can really show them the beautiful abundance that the earth can give you in a, in what is an, an infinite amount of food. Is once you start growing, you get your seeds. You can just it's it can go on for generations, and that. For me, again, I'm not a religious person; I'm quite spiritual. But I do believe that you know the earth and the, the plants that live here are built to be an infinite source of food for us, and there's absolutely no need to cause the level of suffering and abuse that we do to animals. Obviously, someone who's passionate about history, I understand that our consumption of animals did get humanity through a tricky part in our evolution. Well, that time is done. We're over. <laughs> It's time to move to a new way of living, and I really, really, really stand by this lifestyle. In the beginning, when I first went vegan, you know, eight years ago, I was a bit worried. I joined a cult, and I was worried that, you know, you know, what am I doing? Am I recommending the right way to live? And maybe we do have to eat animals, and maybe I'm wrong. But after spending time with, you know, so many passionate people such as yourselves, interviewing so many plant-based doctors, nutritionists, and dietitians who've been doing this work for four, four decades. Or more, you know, who really believe it、uh, and believe in it, and meeting so many people whose lives are completely transformed by plant-based food, I am absolutely, without a, a single ounce of doubt, that this is who we are and how we should live into the future. So I will stand alongside you both till till my last breath, so that we can、uh, continue to further this conversation. And uh, yeah, uh, obviously. Keeping in mind self-care and、uh, remembering that you know a healthy, mentally well activist is a is an activist that's、uh, going to make it、uh, through through to the to the bitter end. But、uh, it's really been great to speak to you both, and、uh, I'm really inspired by the conversation, and really excited to see where the Pompeii Treaty goes. Thank you so much, Robbie. Thanks for your wisdom. So before I let you both go, I always love to ask my guests this one final question. It's a bit of a tradition. So if you were both stuck on a desert island and、uh, it was just you and a pig, you're obviously on your own desert islands.、Uh, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know what's coming. Nicola, you you first. If I could give you one vegan dish, one music album, and one book, what would you take with you? One vegan dish. I just some kind of salad because I, I love eating my salads. And a book. I think I would want some kind of. Puzzle book to keep my brain occupied. <laughs> I love doing quizzes and crosswords and puzzles. So I'd like something to keep my brain going. Oh my god! An album. I really can't pick a favorite artist or album. So it'd have to be some kind of compilation album of 
protest songs, I think. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that will keep you going. And you, Anita, if you're on your island with your pig friend, what's your book, your music, and your vegan dish? So vegan dish, I'd probably have a kale salad with lots of interesting things in it, like nuts and things like that. Um, kale will grow well on that island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Has a long season, a good multiple seasons. Um, yeah. For a book, I'd probably have Leo Tolstoy's A Calendar of Wisdom. It has like um, interesting sayings for every day of the year. And that's where the bearing witness quote and a lot of golden rule kind of quotes come, which I think is are universal. So like it's a book where we could communicate with extraterrestrials. These are universal moral principles. And then uh, finally, uh, favorite album. This, this is really difficult. Uh, maybe Shostakovich or maybe some classical music. Beautiful. We'll keep you serene on the, on your days on the desert island. Thank you so much both for you, for joining us in the PBN podcast. A pleasure to, to hear your story. Thanks a million. Thanks, Robbie. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN podcast. We'll be back next time with animals, food, fashion, veganism, and everything in between. <laughs>